heavily, I'm a clown. What's up guys and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Today is something a little bit different, something that I've never done before. So my two most popular episodes that I've ever done have been the two episodes where Ben Prentice came on and him and I talked about the Bitcoin spectrum and then the second episode we did together called Checkmate. People have loved our talks. Uh, ben and I have really good synergy and, and him and I talk all the time. And the other day we were having a chat on Discord and it was just so good. We were both kind of like, why are we not recording this? Like people like to hear what we have to say. I've had people message me on Twitter like, hey, you and Ben should do content more often. So we came up with this idea. This was actually Ben's idea, a new show called Hashing Out, where him and I just get together and hash out details, uh, pun intended, obviously, hash out details on really anything related to economics or philosophy or uh, just Bitcoin in general. Uh, so this is just not, it's not scripted, it's not planned out, it's not a very structured discussion, we're kind of just off the rails. But, you know, maybe people might like this this style of content. So um, we recorded our conversation the other day about our new project, WTF Happened in 1971.com, where we're trying to figure out what is going on with all these chart anomalies after 1971. Give this conversation a listen. Maybe this is something you guys will like more of in the future. If it is, let me know. You know, feedback will tell me whether or not we should keep doing this thing, whether or not we should record more of our conversations. If you guys like it, if it's not for you, you know, that's cool. You can just hang out. Uh, this will be a good way for me to fill the gaps when I have like a drought of guests for the Bitcoin Echo Chamber interview show. Um, and who knows, maybe Ben Prentice will be the Matt Odell to my Marty Bent. All right, guys. See you at the end. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTF Happened in 1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Yeah, so like I, I notice it, it almost doesn't matter what metric you look at. Everything went went kind of crazy after 1971. Uh, yeah, I mean, what the hell happened in 1971, man? <laughs> yeah, I, I love the meme, dude. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever pick up any traction, but I think that memes are so powerful for getting people, you know, because... There's so much that fits within that meme. It's like, okay, what the fuck happened in 1971? Well, I don't know. Um, and then you, you start to just go down the rabbit hole from there. Like, you don't even have to... You might... You, you could be like a, a Keynesian, right? And think that inflation is good. And then it's like, well, what the fuck happened in 1971 then? I, I don't know. And then you go back and look at the charts and it's like, well, everything went nuts. Like, in, in ways that it has never done... You know, I find it interesting that the UK has financial data going back as far as it does like all the way to the 1500s and we can go back and see periods of stability in things like uh the the bond rate like the borrowing rate for hundreds of years and then right at 1971 it just goes crazy high and then over the next couple decades it tanks and now it's trending towards zero and beyond yeah i mean even even the Divorce prevalence by age. <laughs> divorce crazy. Divorce prevalence by age, like childhood obesity goes up. Like, um <laughs> I haven't been able to find really good data on um well, so I also found this data that basically said that more intelligent people are having less children and less intelligent people are having more children. And that oh, those like those are like inversely but I couldn't find a whole lot of good data on that before 1971. That's kind of the hard thing. Like a it's lot like of the, the the movie Idiocracy. <laughs> yeah, right, that? right. But like a lot of the data, you can find really good data starting in like the 80s, and then it gets harder to find data that aggregates all the way back before 1971. So you don't really know what the right. trends were like before. I agree. I found that too. Um, uh. 
everything that you can, there's a market change in 1971. Yeah, but like noticeable. Um, well, the incarceration rate rate per capita went up like, for, like tremendously in 1971. Oh, I haven't seen that. There's there's so much data. Maybe we should uh, start a website. Maybe we should start a website. What will we call it? Uh, well, let's see. What's the meme? What the fuck happened in 1971? How was WTF happened in 1971.com? All right, let's <laughs> let's do that. But I mean, people are gonna think we're just crazy. You know, they're gonna look at that and be like, "Oh, well, you you can't look at these. You have to take into account. Uh, you can't claim that workers have got more productive uh, and they haven't been compensated appropriately because um, because statistical reasons." <laughs> it's. I mean, th- that is like overwhelming. I mean, banking crises. Uh. Well, but, uh, you, you know, um, inflation and, and negative interest is, is this just the natural progression. This is what we want, right? I mean, You know what I was thinking about today? So I was talking this morning with um, a guy who lives in Venezuela. Uh, and he was talking about, um, you know, he, 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 he uses Bitcoin in Venezuela as a store of value and sometimes as a medium of exchange. And uh, he tries not to use bolivars. Um, and bolivars, if you're not familiar, are... Uh, it's what I call evaporating money. Uh, the the value changes day to day. It's it's dropping uh, like a roller coaster. It just goes straight down. And he was t- and I was asking him. I was like, oh well, you know, are you a are you a Bitcoin only guy or are you uh or do you are you into you know? Because he, he said he accepts some other cryptos. And he's like, oh no no, I just changed those all for Bitcoin right away. And we went into the you know the thing about liquidity and how you know even. If it's cheaper fee-wise, he like loses it on the exchange and the volatility risk. And then I was, <laughs> I was thinking about the bolivars, and he's like, "Oh yeah, like I, I spend my bolivars right away, right? You know, it's like uh, Thier's law." And, mm. and and he's you know he was making fun of the Keynesians, and I you know I thought I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, the velocity of money, right? Have you heard this velocity of money? How like oh you gotta have good velocity of money to have a good economy. Well, well right, right. Because if you don't <laughs> encourage people to spend, then the economy comes to a grinding halt, right? Oh I yeah, mean, that, nobody buys idea. anything, right? Well, right. in Venezuela, the velocity of money is through the roof, right? Yeah, it's it's and like it's like roller coaster, like you said, it's it's moving at a hundred miles per hour. The, the the money is hot potatoes that people are going trying to get rid of as soon as possible and buy goods that don't lose value, right? Like even if it's toilet paper or, or diapers. So shouldn't and, this be like sending their economy to the moon? <laughs> that's what I'm saying, right? So they have the highest velocity of money in the world. And in before some Keynesian comes along and says, uh, hey, hey, listen, it has to be just the right amount of velocity of money. Oh, okay, well, okay. Well, how do you... <laughs> How do you measure the velocity of money? How so it's kind of like, you know, if you start going too fast, the wheels start coming off. Is that, is that the idea? <laughs> I suppose. I don't know. So, I'm, you know, and, and this is why, so like you look at all these graphs, right? Because, I don't know, with, with what the fuck happened in 1971, our website, it's, it's not like we're trying to say, oh, 1971 caused um, the divorce rate to go up. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. I'm looking at the data. And I'm seeing trends that happened on a macroscopic level, like all across the board, everywhere you look, like housing prices, like housing indexes going up, like global debt going up, like exponentially, like inflation going up, compensation going down, like all of these trends that happened that you can see very, very clearly on the chart started going nuts at 1971. Now, I can't prove, I'm not, I'm not here to say that they're correlated, but I just see the data, and the data is is compelling. Yeah, even even the stock prices. I mean, that I guess that starts more in the '80s. Um, but you know, I was looking at. I, I think one of the things that I noticed lags 1971 a little bit, but I think is a really key factor personally uh, is the wealth inequality. Because especially because you know, I mean, listen. Everybody else is talking about wealth inequality right now. It's not mm-hmm. not just me, and it's it's these are the people that are you know calling for Bernie Sanders and AOC to save the country by redistributing all the wealth because there's too much wealth inequality. So again, this is not my trope. This is the modern trope. Mm-hmm. But wealth inequality starts to go crazy in the '80s, and I mean, you know, again, we're we're trying to be Austrians here and not try to you know use all this empirical data to decide how the economy should should be run. We're, we're trying to do the opposite, and we're, we're, we're looking at, you know, what 
what has happened running it the Keynesian way and, and see if it really is, you know, prosperity. Uh, and, and I don't see that it is. And, and what, I, what I notice is the capital gains rate rises steadily in the 1970s, um, meaning that you know, my, 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 th- my hypothesis is essentially that people hold store value assets that inflate because of inflation, uh, because of the increase in the money supply, prices generally go up. Right. People put right. money on these assets that are going up, and and that that capital just naturally flows to assets just because they function better as a store of value um, than the currency. I mean, it, it's it's not rocket science to, to know. Well, yeah, you know, if you, if your currency becomes worth less and less, and we want to increase that velocity of money, we want to encourage spending. Well, then people are going to buy things that are going to hold their value, right? They're not going to go out. I mean, some people are going to go out and and consume mindlessly. Um, they're going to live for today, right? But but the people who want to preserve their wealth, they're going to buy assets that are going to appreciate um, or are going to at least hold relative value. And you know, Connor Brown talked a lot about this in the in his intrinsic value article. You know, about like how it affects housing prices and and uh, gold's availability and and really anything that that normally consumers would be purchasing for their enjoyment or for their usage, um, those become store of value assets and become inflated. Right. And then in 1980s, um, there's a sharp drop in the capital gains rate. So essentially I'm saying that the, the barrier to really benefiting from the, the increased inflation, that, that the one thing that you know Keynesians have not argued with me on is that in 1971, inflation did start going crazy. Hmm. Um, it, and it and just, debt. It takes off. Right. And yes, debt. and debt definitely takes off at the same the same time, right? Uh, although that debt is dollar denominated, so you know, inflation wise, it it if you're built if you're adding debt, it does make sense that it would correlate that way. Right. But, right. But what I'm saying is that the the capital gains rate just plummets in the 80s, and then people could further take advantage of this uh, this inflation store value asset money train thing. So anybody that had had available capital right in that time period uh pretty much had the opportunity to get you know and it kind of almost fits into the cantillion effect a little bit too if you think about it because it's like okay you know on a macro level right 1971 happens Bretton Woods is it Bretton Woods collapses all right well anybody that has capital right then and there has the advantage to get into everything at the bottom Right, because if we assume that based on the velocity of money, capital is going to start flowing into store value assets, um, anybody at that right point in time, right there, that has capital, is getting in at the the bottom of the like the bottom of the roller coaster. Okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. If you look at the long-term stock prices, that is the bottom. Of right. The right. Very, very long trend. Right. So I mean. You know, seeing the wealth inequality, it, it's almost like, well, of course, you know, because if if anybody that had capital at that point in time, um, that that was aware of this paradigm shift, right, this macroscopic trend, and they were smart with their capital, um, they've only benefited from this. Yeah, for sure. I I just read an article by Ray Dalio about paradigm shifts and how. There's one every, you know, ten years or so, and it's it's the people that position themselves to take advantage of those paradigm shifts. So the, the market is is like a consensus on what prices should be, and you know, for 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 the majority of this 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 decade long cycle, you want to be with the market. But at the end of one of these cycles, when there is one of these paradigm shifts, you need to understand why they're wrong and how to shift kind of your your position and you have to be able to do that you have to have liquidity and and be in a position to be able to you know quote sell those tops and buy those bottoms yeah you know this is why i'm i i quickly lost like the more i educated myself about economics i really quickly lost any interest in like things like day trading right because um you know as austrians like you know you mentioned this earlier like mises said that economics is not really an empirical science right i mean you, you can't you can't manage economic factors with with data because you can't predict demand 
in the future, right? You, you can't predict, you can never predict whether or not someone's going to prefer A over B, right? On a given day, they might prefer A. On a given day, they might prefer B. On a given day, they might prefer C. Like you never can know um, how humans are going to act. And it's the job of the speculator to observe needs and wants in mankind and, and to try to react accordingly. And to do that, he needs to speculate using whatever capital capital he's accumulated to try and ease the bird to try and predict like what's going to happen next, right. In the macro trend. Um, so for right. me, the, the whole day trading thing is, is kind of nonsense. Cause you're, it's almost like you're, you're playing with uh, half a deck, especially if you're not paying attention to the macros. Some people have, information you know as we've we've speculated before about what might happen next uh, and those people stand to profit a whole lot um and and i think another part of what you were just talking about is it's it's not just speculation but it's assessing risk right and that investment should entail risk um and the you know the way the last 10 years has gone is that this just stick your money in an indexed fund and there's there's zero risk right right it'll just keep going up right because it always has um you know in in mises talks about this too with bonds um the idea that you know there's that meme of the guy on twitter that said the idea that society owes you like who says society owes you a store of value for your like um, money with as a store of value who says that society owes you that um but it's kind of funny because we kind of already have that in in things like bonds and index funds. I mean, what's the average American do, right? They contribute to their 401k uh, because that's that's the smartest way to accumulate wealth for yourself. That's what that's what you're told, right? You put your money into index funds. You you go for the the cheap say or not cheap, but but safe, low yield, long term investments because that's how you win, right? Long term, you you you're a good boy. You go to job, you go to your job, you earn money, you squirrel a little bit of away for sixty years, and then you get to retire. That's the status quo, and and those funds are required uh, to hold a certain percentage percentage, and uh, they they can't hold a certain percentage. Of- cash that can only hold a small percentage and some of it has to be in bonds i think and this is actually like it leads into you know in, in switzerland well bonds aren't aren't a safe investment anymore uh they're negative yielding bonds and isn't it, it, it and, and yeah and this is what i was getting into with with mises because mises said you know the idea um that that governments can provide a safe long-term investment in the form of debt um and and ever you know maybe in the past there were times when they made good on that debt but the trend now is that that debt is repaid with capital borrowed from more debt and what people don't really realize about government debt is that 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 debt is financed by us like today right now everybody who buys a bond is deferring consumption today to give that capital availability to whatever government they're financing um and and you're financing imagine imagine if you had a friend right who was regularly going out to eat at fancy dinners and putting it on his credit card and he got to the point where his credit card was maxed out and he couldn't finance his lifestyle anymore so he takes out another credit card and starts paying off the first credit card with that credit card would you give that guy a loan with the assumption that you'd be paid back in full well, I mean, does he have a monopoly on on the violence and force in order to uh, extract wealth from people? Yeah. In this analogy. Yeah, that's where it gets uh, that's where it gets a little complicated, huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, like our governments have revenue, right? And and you know, so do businesses. But our governments aren't businesses, or like, or are they? I mean, they they collect member fees, right? So maybe they're more like a. Uh, what do you call that? Like a co-op or a club? Right. So right. they collect member fees, um, and they they kick you out if you don't you know pay the fees. They generate revenue, and uh, they they don't they don't seek profits, right? Because right. profits are surpluses. 
And they don't have to maintain profitability in order right. to exist. Because they can continue to extract wealth because they have a monopoly position. And so, I, I don't know what my point is, but see, government bonds, are, they just sound like a pyramid scheme to me. Right, because at a certain point, you know, so so what comes next, right? I mean, we, we all saw what happened with the QE, right, following 2008. Uh, and then recently, you know, they switched to QT and they started unwinding the balance sheet and uh, it, it it started to make some waves in the economy. So they were like, oh, no, 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 we're done with that. We're not doing that. Okay, and by the way, rates are not, uh, they're not going up. Uh, in fact, we're going to lower rates. We're going to start lowering rates again. Um, and it's only a matter of time, right? Rates are trending towards zero at this point. Uh, prominent economists I've seen say, we'll never have rates raised again in our lifetime, right? So we're, we're trending towards zero. So what's the next play? Well, it's more QE, right? It's more of the Federal Reserve buying debt from the government. Um, and as it stands right now, they already own like like a third of, of federal debt, right? Um, and so, so, again, it's like, where do you go next? Well, negative rates and more QE, um, that's all there really is. So if, if you're buying a bond today with the assumption that the issuer will make good on that payment, like... I, with more debt like what that just doesn't well i mean you could look at japan isn't that kind of similar to what japan is doing now so from my understanding japan the bank of japan owns uh a lot of the equity in the country right Mm -hmm. and that's just because they've been their their debt i think it's their debt to gdp has been very excessive for a long time right yeah, they, they. I think they're a top ten shareholder, in, uh, like, un, like a the majority of of companies in the stock market or something. And isn't that quite a conundrum? I mean, the moral hazard of any organization that can print money that legally has to be accepted, you know, in that country, to just be buying up the equity in these businesses in the country and buying up debt like how are people okay with that japan's interest rate has remained below one percent since 1996 you know the population in japan is actually shrinking yeah and and they've actually experienced deflation so this is what's really interesting is like uh i was reading about negative interest rates and how they almost have the opposite effect of what you know you what what the what the government wants out of it is that people see negative interest rates or, or very low interest rates maybe mm-hmm. and instead of being like oh great let's borrow more money and spend more money um, that they instead like see risk they they maybe start pulling back and say you know something's not right here and I think negative interest rates you know I talk about this a lot but I it just it absolutely it makes zero sense to me I mean why if somebody's paying you to borrow money, you know that there's something wrong, and and I'm I'm saying that I'm not the only one saying that. It's it's market participants that are doing that, and and Japan has actually seen deflation. Um, it, one of the very few places on the earth. I, I don't know if that's exactly happening right this moment, but uh, it, that kind of correlates with that. It's it's, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Um... Where it was like, okay, I don't know. You you were like, I don't understand negative interest rates. It's like, why would people buy debt that has negative yield? And I was like, uh, how do you rationalize absurdity? <laughs> like, he, you know, just Google who buys negative yielding bonds, and one of the first things you'll see is uh, an article, and it's who buys negative yielding bonds. It's like, and then the article is like, well, f- to answer that question, first we need to talk more about X, Y, and Z. And I'm like. Okay, I know this trick. <laughs> I didn't even read the article. I, I did. Um, and I got to the end of it, and I was like, okay, so who, so who buys it, negative exactly. yielding Exactly, that's, that's the trick. It's like, okay, I've got a simple question. Who buys negative yielding bonds? Oh, well, to answer that question, first we need to talk about this, this, and this, and this. And then they never end up answering the question. You know, it's like, why'd you even write the article? 
and, and the only answer I've gotten so far, because I've been asking on Twitter a few different places now, is that the those those mutual funds that we were talking about earlier, right, the and the central that, banks, the four hundred one k's. Oh, and the central banks themselves, right, because makes even less sense. And this is why the Bank of Japan owns, you know, so much of the Japanese economy is because no one else is buying this stuff. So I mean, th- what's what's the limits on this game? You know, we we talked about checkmate before. Like, have they? played all their cards you know and uh, i've heard some people that understand the markets very well say oh no they can keep this going for you know for indefinitely that's the case but but are there limits on you know this government as a business you know do do they run up against any brick walls here yeah where does it stop i mean Uh, it's it's unprecedented right i mean we don't have this has never happened um and and global global bonds are trending to zero all across the board. Like if you just pull up bonds, right? They're 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 all red and they're all trending towards zero. Um, what are the implications of that? You know, I I was talking with some people Friday night and they're like, well, uh, obviously, you know, if if we just default on all of our debt, China's gonna start a war because they're gonna want their money. Um, but that I don't know that that's in line with reality because China's debt to GDP is higher than ours. Uh, like, it's not like, you know, if the U.S. were to default on all their debt tomorrow and say, okay, we're, we're just starting over. We're going to do a currency reset and all this debt is just forgiven. Um, there's, it, it, it's more interconnected than that. China's not going to be like, whoa, you're going to give us our money. Like, we own China's debt too. And the vast majority of our debt is actually owned by private holders. Like, something like 40-something percent of federal debt is owned by um, private investors. It's not owned by China. You know what's actually interesting? Uh, I, I, I had heard that China's debt, debt to GDP was much higher, and I think I've even mentioned that here on the... Uh, but it, they're actually not. They're, they're only at 46%. They, they are going up. Um, up from 30% in, like, 2010. They're up to, like, already 47% or so. But that, that actually surprised me a lot. That's assuming... Well... Hmm... What am I thinking of then? Because China's got something that, some sort of debt ratio that that is just absurd. Uh, yeah, I believe you're correct. I'm just not sure exactly what it is. I, I, I correct myself on that. Yeah, I can't recall. Um, but you know, and, and that's assuming the economic data that we're getting from them is accurate. Because sure. um, that's another part of this game, right? I mean. Well, one of the one of the walls I was talking about uh, is inflation itself, right? So they can keep, you know, printing money and buying up these these bonds, for example, or you know, in Japan's case, buying up a lot of those equities. Uh, but the allegedly the one of the the walls is inflation. Uh, another one is that we're, which is tied to the inflation thing, is that where our our payments on interest, you know that paying out on the, on this debt itself is is starting to become such a huge budget item that right you know, right e- eventually that will exceed gdp yeah that it, sounds like a scary situation yeah and that's not that far off um and and assuming interest trends towards zero and then negative um does that mean that all of the that instead of paying loan servicing costs the u.s government now gets a kickback for all their debt how so? If if uh, the federal fund rate goes below zero, does that affect pre-existing debt? I think it does because when rates go up, loan servicing costs go up. Yeah, it, it affects the market for debt. Right, but I'm talking about the U.S. government's obligations because the U.S. government is responsible for paying interest to the central banks, and that's that's the um, loan servicing costs that we're talking about. To the central banks and and to you know the holders of the loans too, like any private holders. So does that mean you know if, if we have negative yielding bonds, um, the U.S. government has a monopoly on debt, at least you know in the U.S. Does that mean that that now the U.S. government is getting paid for all that debt? It's like it's like playing a, a game of risk where you can add new pieces. 
and all the different countries get to add new pieces like at will i mean think about that for a second think about that for a second we've got the u.s government when when bond yield or when federal fund rate goes below zero right the u.s government who has close to 20 trillion dollars in debt will be earning yield on that debt on the debt itself that you hold the more you get paid <laughs> what like uh, so is that is that the end game to accumulate as much debt as possible until interest goes negative and then just reap the rewards well certainly some of it's got to be fixed rate you can't just change I, all of the the debt over by changing the federal funds rate i don't i don't know I don't I don't know enough about it. Um, well, because negative interest rates are, are absolute insanity. Because it's nonsense. Because we're again we're trying to rationalize absurdity. Like we're trying to see how this complete nonsense fits into the like reality. You know, another thing that I've been thinking about is that you know, so so governments target inflation um, because they believe that or or. They, they tell us, anyways, that inflation is a, is a necessary component of, of keeping markets moving, keeping people spending money, the velocity of money that we already talked about. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of these things I was thinking about is that, so in order to have inflation, essentially, you need to increase the supply of money. Um, and essentially, where, did, where does that money go, right? Like, how do you distribute that money? You know, if you just give it all to your, your crony pals, well, th- that probably won't look so good if somebody figures it out. So you have right. to, like... So do you just airdrop it to everybody? And, right. and and you can't do that really because then it doesn't. Everybody still has the same amount of money, right? Right, so, right. Uh, which which is by the way what Andrew Yang is going to do. He's going to airdrop money to everybody. Um, right, and we're all in exactly the same situation we were before. Like nothing has changed. <laughs> so this this like idea that they they have to give people money, but they have to only give it to some people. It's very strange. Uh, and and by giving away free debt. 0% interest rates or negative interest rates paying people to take money uh, it's that's like them like pleading with us to take their money <laughs> they're desperate yeah they're desperate to give out money yeah um, you know we were talking about because I was going down this rabbit hole about the, the new deal in the 1930s I was reading up on Henry Wallace and, and all of his absolutely atrocious um, agricultural policies that he helped institute during the Great Depression, where basically everyone in the like half the country was starving, right? Because the economy had come to a standstill, uh, and and food prices had just tanked because there was a surplus of food. Uh, and even though everybody was starving, right? No one could afford to buy food because food was still, you know, they didn't have income or whatever. Um, so the U.S. government, Henry Wallace in particular, pushed forward this legislation where the U.S. government would pay farmers not to farm in order to artificially increase prices of food in a market where everybody was starving in order to protect the profitability of farms. You know, it got so bad that they were dumping kerosene on oranges to prevent their consumption. Uh, and and killing pregnant pigs so that they wouldn't give birth. All to save the X industry. To protect, not not even to like save the industry, to protect profit margin, right on a market with a surplus. It would, in a country where that. people are starving. That was in 1933, I think, was when the Agricultural Act was passed. Um, and then Henry Wallace later served as the uh, vice president under FDR and was influential uh, in the the new banking act, right? The banking act of 1933. And the banking act of 1933, around this time is when uh, the markets had collapsed, right? And, and people started to go to take their money out of the banks because they didn't trust that the banks had their money. And, and there was this bank run that started almost overnight on America and they 
FDR, well, first of all, the banks went on holiday, right? They had like a five-day yeah. holiday where they just shut the doors and didn't, wouldn't let anybody come in and take out their money. And there were people, you know, lined up around city blocks waiting to get into these banks to get their money. Um, and then FDR declared national bank holidays after that, right, to sort of extend this window. And Congress had like this emergency session where they all voted into legislation, the 1933 Banking Act, um, which was sort of multi-pronged, right? It had FDIC in there, um, which basically was like, okay, we're going to make sure that, that this never happens again. We're going to create this organization. It's going to be called the FDIC, and we're going to ensure every single American's bank account in the country. We're going to print however much money it takes, right? That was the, 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 the words that was used. We're going to print however much money it takes to make good on everybody's money uh, in the country. And this was like a shift in, in free market banking. Whereas before, you know, you were taking a risk by putting your money into a bank because the bank would speculate with your money. They would loan it out. They would invest it and, and they would earn a return. And you were taking a risk that the bank you were keeping your money with was do, doing good on that speculation. And then you would earn a little bit of a return on that money. And then you would assume it would be there, you know, when you went to go withdraw it. Um, but because of this cascading bank run, Right, the U.S. government almost overnight voted into legislation this FDIC law, which was part of the Banking Act, and it was it was so fast. It happened so fast that there was only one copy of the legislation on the on the floor when they voted for it, and they had to like give it to the speaker, and the speaker had to read the legislation out loud because they had so little time to create the resources for this law that was passed into action like overnight. And so, and all of this was a, kind of in reaction to 1929 stock market crash. Right. Well, it was right. So it was, um, it was like a like a second order effect of that. It right. It, it um, and then, you know, the other piece to the to the banking act was that they they made it so that. Uh, forgive me. I might I might get some of the details here, wrong. But they basically separated, equity institutions from depository institutions if that makes sense okay so now banks were no longer able to speculate in the same ways that they were before um, this was the the glass steagall act and it, i think it was steagall who specifically said that the best part about this was that it would um, prevent banks from engaging in like erroneous speculation right where, where it didn't need to happen and it would encourage capital to be used in better places right in the country because the government uh the federal government could dictate where this capital was being used and then on top of that he also said that now they would be able to make it so everybody could get loans the bank would not be able to tell you no you know within reason right you still had to have somewhat of credit you still have an income but now it'd be like now everybody can get a mortgage now everybody can get a small business loan we can dictate what's done with this capital this was like the first you know you and you look at this stuff like in in the broad picture like the agricultural act um the banking act i'm sure that there were others this was like the first step in america's attempt to socialize the economy like and, and, and this was going on at the same time in Germany. And we went and fought Germany, right, in World War II, supposedly because they were doing this type of stuff. These, these same socialist policies. So when was it that it was, it, it was the 1913 that the Federal Reserve required banks to have deposits with the, with the Federal Reserve itself? Um, no, that was, that was so FDIC is what required uh, banks if you wanted to be so if you wanted your depository institution to have FDIC coverage you had to become a member a member of the Federal Reserve like board um, so you know it, it, put yourself in the shoes of a bank manager in in 1930s and you don't have like you can't make good on your deposits right on your on your liabilities I guess 
liabilities isn't the right word because deposits are technically not considered a liability. Even though you've lent this out, right? You've lent out this capital and, and the market's tanked and you have a small fraction of what you should. And now there's a bank run and everybody wants to come into your bank and get their money back, right? You know that you're a day away from going out of business. And here the federal government comes offering this FDIC where they'll they'll make good on all of your um, on all of your bankruptcy basically and all you have to do but you have to become a part of the federal reserve board in order to get the benefits of this insurance right and, and fast forward to today fdic is bankrupt right i mean every american knows that their bank account is insured up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars by the fdic but the fdic doesn't even have the money to cover everybody's bank account um it's, it's an unfunded liability they would have to print that money in order to make good on the deposits in financial institutions across the country. Right. And, you know, all of this is done under the, the, the idea that, you know, there was the, it was the problem of being tied to gold that caused 1929 and that all of this was done for stability. And the one thing that it is obvious to people is that there aren't really bank runs anymore, right? So that sounds like a fantastic thing. I mean, it would have been kind of frustrating if I had had my money in a bank and then the bank went under. Right. So, well, we don't even we don't even really think about the possibility of that anymore. Like, right. If my even if my bank goes out of business, you know, I'm going to be like, well, my money will still, it'll still be there. Like my, the bank will just get bought or like the government will pay me the money because of FDIC. Like I don't have to even, I don't even consider that. Like, because banks don't operate on the free market anymore. And the idea of my money not being there is no longer really a concern, at least not like a conscious concern. And, and wait, all right. So you mentioned, uh, the whole, idea of the Great Depression being predicated on the fact that, well, we were on the gold standard, right? And the the Keynesian idea is that, well, we need to increase the velocity of money because what caused the Great Depression was that nobody was spending, um, things became too deflationary, and that caused the economy to grind to a halt. What, let, let's talk about that. What What caused the Great Depression? I mean, I don't really know that i know um but we have we have some ideas right uh, i mean my understanding is that it was a it was a credit expansion bubble and it it happened right after the establishment of the federal reserve so the federal service is, is established in 1913 uh then there's world war one that happens and they say oh we gotta pay for all this stuff from world war one and they they i mean the the credit the the money the money supply actually suspended expanded significantly the m2 right yes yeah m2 ballooned it far in excess of the trend uh for about the course of a decade right in the 20s yeah. uh ballooned massively like unprecedented levels of growth in m2 money supply um in in the 1920s and there was even this idea of the roaring 20s right because right. every like everything everyone was was glorious partying, everyone yeah. was drinking everyone was dancing <laughs> and, and then comes the hangover. Yes. 1930, right? 1929, stock market crash. The Dust Bowl. I mean, people lost everything. Like, but but there but nothing was like, you know, the people lost everything. But the banks were never liquidated. They were saved. They were bailed out. It was like the the first bailout. You know. Yeah. Everybody was so pissed when. Uh, Obama bailed out the banks in 2008, but we've been bailing out banks since 1933. Yeah. And the other thing that happened um, with as a shortly after the the 1933 Banking Act, it was actually like a month later, was Executive Order 6102. Uh, yes. Which made it illegal for anybody in the United States to own gold. Because gold was the problem, right? That's that's the predication. Gold was the evil that they had to save us from because that was what caused this financial collapse, right? At least that's what that's what we were told. I'm trying to look up interest rates in 1913. It's hard to find that data. Yeah. Probably by design. 
it's not easy to find. Treasury yield. Does that help us? I believe so. Is that United States? Yeah. Ten year treasury yield. Interesting. So what um I would imagine you might see some some interesting things happening around like probably the World War Two era because World War One, we were mostly selling uh, through the lend-lease agreements. We were mostly providing arms up until the end of the war. Yeah, there's there's not really any low um, low interest rates in in the in nineteen 1920s really. What what um what what are they like on average? Like five percent? Yeah, based on this, around four percent. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, so what caused the the credit boom that we're talking about? I mean, the money supply certainly did increase, according yeah. to the data we've seen. I don't know uh, if I had to <laughs> guess. You know, so look at Europe, right? Europe had to finance the biggest war that had ever happened. Um, maybe we were buying some of their debt. Hiked rates in 1920 to control some of the inflation. Interesting. Well, we we do know that M2 went up a lot uh, in excess of trend, and that's actually on the website. That chart, I think, right? I don't know if that put up. I guess that's not really 1971 though. <laughs> so it's a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole. I think we need to dig into this more. I th I think 1929 is kind of a key because it you know like you said it 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 spawned all these things in 1933 as a second order effect because of this horrible depression that we were in. You know? Right, and, and and you know I said this to you the other day. The 1933 Banking Act made Bretton Woods inevitable. Um, because, you know, the banks didn't have to, first of all, the banks couldn't compete, uh, the way they used to anymore. And, and it made them beholden to this federal reserve system in a way that they had never been right. And, and now, um, credit expansion was kind of unchecked. And of course, it's only a matter of time given unchecked credit expansion that the gold standard is going to have to go Wait, You can't maintain a gold standard with unchecked credit expansion because eventually you know when that when that hangover happens and the debt comes to bear there's not enough gold to even cover the the, mon the money the the money supply because it's been expanded too much it's not feasible right right so gold gold is the problem <laughs> all we need to do is be able to print more money right so we make it illegal to own gold right and and that Executive Order 6102, that was rescinded. Uh, I don't remember how long it took, uh, but the government was basically like, hey, we, we can't just make it illegal for people to own gold. I think that might... I can't remember exactly where that was overturned. I'd have to look it up. Was that uh, when the redemption was only available in large gold bars, though, so most people couldn't redeem? You know, I don't know. And... It's interesting because we talked about this before. Um, it, you know, if you live in a world where under under the gold standard, and I, I don't know a whole lot of people that did, um, aside from like my grandparents, you know, my 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 parents were young. Um, <clears throat> why would you redeem your 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 pieces of paper that are backed by perfectly good gold that are easy to transport and uh, highly liquid. Why would you redeem that for gold? Like, why? Right. You, you, you just wouldn't. I mean, nation states might do it, you know, to settle uh, debts internationally. Um, and huge trading partners, right, and, and banks will do it, and huge trading partners might do it. But 
the average person is is not going to go like, okay, I've got my seven dollars. I'm going to go redeem it for gold now. Like, <laughs> you just wouldn't do that. So you know, when Bretton Woods ended, you wouldn't have noticed a change. Yeah, and and that's what I get from people when I ask them about it. They're like, oh, I don't really. It I wasn't really a, remember it, it happening. It wasn't a big deal. Business as usual, and and you know, meanwhile, we have this this feedback loop right because the the credit expansion is is churning out money um things are good you know it's the 1920s again it's the roaring 20s um and then we have vlocker who tried to check inflation in the 80s and and cranked rates way up and then we have another recession and It, the the cycle just continues, you know, and ever since, and now it's like it's to the point now where they can't even do that with rates anymore. Not even they can't even they don't even think they can raise them at all anymore. <laughs> A perpetually high plateau. What, what's that quote? Isn't that from from nineteen twenty eight? Oh, I don't know. I think the markets know. have reached a perpetually high plateau. Well, we've Why? I do know perpetually low plateau of interest rates. Yeah, well, I do know. You know, go look at like England, uh, not just like the UK's um, bond yield, right? It goes all the way back to like the 1500s, and it's it's mostly flat for like centuries. Five percent. There were some periods of time where it where it's fluctuated a little bit, but it was mostly between like three and five percent. And then the 1970s come along and. Just like in the U.S., like interest shoots up to insanely high yields, and and it peaked right in the '80s, and ever since then it's been trending down. And I don't think it's it was it was almost like it just hit the ceiling, and it just broke, and now it's on its way down, in, infinitely. Be, below the the long term average. Right below zero for sure. You know, it almost seems inevitable at this point um, that we're going to see international debt default and, and a currency reset in our lifetime. Sounds scary. Yeah. What does that look like on the scales that we've seen it happen? Have we ever seen that happen on a, a nationwide scale? Debt, debt default? Has Venezuela defaulted on their debts? Did uh, did Asia, or what is it like uh, Vietnam and stuff? There was a Asian crisis in the eighties. Yeah. I wonder, like, what does that look like? They just is there? There's I know I know this is a precedent of debt jubilees, and that hurts the people that the 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 creditors, right? Or no the. That hurts the people that are lending money because then they don't get it back. <laughs> so that's mostly banks. Hmm. Yeah, it, it hurts the people who own the debt, right? And and like I said, you know, in the, in the U.S., something like forty percent of the the federal debt is owned by private investors. It's not owned, you know, like a third of it's owned by the Federal Reserve, maybe less than that, and then the rest of it's owned by foreign nations. So, you know, we can For, talk about or foreign bonds. investors. If there's a default on debt, then bonds held by people in mutual funds and by private investors would just disappear. What would bring upon, you know, why do you say that you think that that's inevitable in a sense? I mean, <laughs> let's play this out, right? I mean, what what keeps this bond market going? Uh, what's going to, like, into the future, right? QE, 0% interest, and then negative interest and, and more QE. Uh, how long can that go? I mean, on an international level. Like, if the U.S. is doing it, I, it it's an international level, right? Because we're sort of like the head of finance. Japan can get away with it. But can the whole world get away with it all at once? I mean, at what point is it, you know, because eventually the central bank of Japan is going to own everything in Japan. 
And then what? Did the people just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, the government owns everything now. I guess we're socialist. One, looking at Japan, actually, one, one thing that would, would be a kind of a, a death rattle would be uh, the, uh, the lack of growth. So the the idea is that the Federal Reserve, you know, targets inflation and, and to to keep unemployment low and to keep growth up, and Japan is not really seeing growth. So if despite all their QE and and their negative interest rates, if we still don't see growth, I think that would be a would be a bad sign. Well, you know, and the same thing could happen to equity markets in the U.S. Right? I mean, we've got the millennial generation c- coming into their own um a lot of them aren't buying stocks either because they can't afford to or because they don't want to um so you know the federal reserve cannot buy equities but other central banks don't have that problem like this the swiss central bank i believe buys equities uh international equities uh, and swiss equities uh, again, moral hazard, right? Because they can just kind of create money indefinitely and, and use that money to drive international equity growth. Um, what, you know, is, is there going to come a day in the United States where we see an attempt to put into legislation central bank equity buying uh, through the Federal Reserve? I think it's very likely. And I don't think anybody would really even care. Like, they'd just be like, yeah, yeah, central banks, they need to buy equities. Of course, it makes sense. Yeah. And they'll just use a bunch of... Um, complicated mumbo jumbo like they always do to make you think that oh well it's because there's um there's liquidity surfaces and the liquidity surfaces need to be actualized by the by the central bank uh uh, jargon right you can make nonsense up you can convince me already of course yeah money for nothing but but what happens right when when the central bank like this trend let's say this trend continues let's say they can keep it going and the central banks just accumulate more and more and more. Uh, do, do we just like throw our hands up in the air and say, well, the central banks own everything now. Um, that's it, I guess. Oh, <laughs> hope, they, uh, hope they treat us well. Like, no, there's going to be revolution. In other news, <laughs> both the, I think it was the Central Bank of China, basically put out a letter saying that Bitcoin is a good investment. Uh, they explained why it has value, and they said that they have, think it has good-looking prospects moving forward. And Iran also legalized mining all across the country. Which is crazy to me, because they have such huge subsidies on the electricity. So I think they have some kind of racket going I, there. I think that they set fee rates, like a special fee rate for miners um, to help generate revenue for the Iranian government. I I don't think that miners are just going to get quite the same level of subsidized electricity. You know, and it's funny that you said that the central bank of, or I mean, sorry, the the Chinese, you said the newspaper or the central bank? No, no, no. I think that this, this was new. I think it was the Chinese central bank. Let me let me double check so I'm because, not putting out bad gouge. Yeah, because the the chairman of our central bank, uh, Jerome Powell, also mentioned that Bitcoin is used as a store of value, like gold, a speculative store of value. Now it, it, he did not endorse Bitcoin. <laughs> I, I do not want to mischaracterize his uh, his oration, but he did mention that that is the case. So I. I don't. Someone told me this that that the Chinese central bank put this information out. I don't see it. Um, I don't. I don't want to say that it happened because it's hearsay. The last I remember, their one of their newest organizations uh, put out the piece saying why it was a good investment. Yeah, and you have Venezuela is still. Um still allowing you to buy their petro with bitcoin and they don't allow you to sell your petro for bitcoins <laughs> so they will happily take your bitcoins for petros which is their government scam coin 
uh, which nobody uses. The only thing you can do with it is buy it with Bitcoin. Uh, and you have Iran. Actually, I mean, they, they, Iran is, you said that they legalized mining? That was what I heard. That was what I was told. So Iran has a high inflation rate. So that they're they're teetering on the really interesting edge of a fence here because you know if people start using Bitcoin, well, it's not great for their currency. But at the same time, they need ways to transact internationally. They've been sanctioned by the U.S. and cannot do so. Right, and and they're allegedly the Iranians have been using Bitcoin to some extent to skirt sanctions. Because of course they have, right? I mean, of course. Why wouldn't they? Oh, there was another really interesting thing. Um, I think it was uh, actually back to Venezuela. Uh, yeah. In a bid to circumvent U.S. sanctions, the government of Venezuela is experimenting with converting tax revenue into Bitcoin and trading it for fiat currency at foreign exchange. Uh, that was in Bitcoin Magazine. Interesting. So, nation states are interested in censorship-resistant money. Imagine that. <laughs> Even though it's uh, it's used for evil things like money laundering and, and drugs and terrorism. Good thing that the U.S. dollar isn't used for any of those things. Yeah, right? Good thing. Uh, good thing. <laughs> Did you see Pierre's, uh, Pierre Richard's uh, thing about the, the toxic U.S. dollar culture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are we going to do about the toxic U.S. dollar culture? Yeah, a bunch of, bunch of toxic memers, those guys. I'll tell you. <laughs> They put a bunch of pictures of dead presidents on them. It's, it's just offensive, really. Slave owners. Actually, yeah, I know Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, at least. I'm pretty sure George Washington did. Uh, the vast majority of people did. It was the tyranny of the status quo at the time. You know? Yeah, yeah we're not going to get into that. We're not going to get into that today. But that is another rabbit hole. There sure are a lot of rabbit holes. Welcome back, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Please, if you enjoyed this content, if you like hashing out, if you think it's something that Ben and I should do more of, let me know. Like Your feedback really helps drive the type of content that I want to produce for the show. If it's something that resonates with my audience, I want to do more of it, uh, especially if it's stuff that Ben and I like talking about and that we're passionate about. And that was definitely kind of what sparked this conversation to begin with. Uh, if, if you guys like the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you can find us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms like Spotify or iTunes or Google Podcasts. Uh, if, if you look for Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you'll probably find us on whatever platform you're on. And if you find yourself keep coming back to the show and you enjoy it, please give me like some thumbs up or some stars or a review on iTunes. All that stuff really goes a long way to help spread the notoriety of my platform and help me get better guests on the show. And if you liked this conversation, you might want to check out Ben and I's website, WTFHappened1971.com. It's still a work in progress. We have a long way to go, but right now we're just putting up information that we think is interesting. So yeah, guys, thanks for listening. And please let me know what you thought about the show. And I will see you guys sometime soon. Oh yeah, and one last thing before I go, I wanted to mention that uh, I started a Discord for the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. It's not very big, it's pretty small, but so far the community is just awesome. I mean, lots of really friendly, extremely intelligent people have joined the Discord, and we've been having some really great conversations over there. So if you want to join the conversation, uh, join the Echo Chamber, if you will, uh, there's a link to the Discord down in the show notes. Come check it out, come say hi. We don't bite. Uh, we'll answer any of your questions, and you're welcome to just jump in the conversation. All right, hope to see you guys there.